Well, good morning, friendship. It's great to be with you this morning. For those of you who have forgotten or don't know, my name is Pastor Jason, and maybe you forgot because the last time I was supposed to preach here, I was sick. So you were stuck with Pastor Matt. I'm obviously kidding. Pastor Matt is a great preacher, a great pastor. We love him here. Uh, but he's away. He's in Alabama um, watching his son Isaiah compete at the national level in the indoor heptathlon. And so we're praying for safe travels back and just a, a good, good time with family this last weekend for them. Um, yeah, so since Matt's not here, I can do what I want. We're going to try something crazy this morning, okay? You guys up for that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this morning, as we read uh, the scripture that we'll be in, which is Romans 9, verses 1 to 18, uh, we're going to do the reading a little bit different. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand up, and um, we're going to divide down the aisle this half of my congregation. You're going to be called Team Romans. And over here, you guys are going to be called Team Road, okay? You put them together and you get Romans Road. That's the series that we are picking up on. This is the third installment of the Romans Road. And uh, so what we're going to do in a moment is have um, this side, you're going to read one set of verses. And this side, you're going to read another set of verses uh, to help us do the scripture reading this morning. I definitely stole this idea from... Pastor Kenny, who's doing this in Shakopee, so if you don't like it, you can complain to him. But before we do that, we're probably going to need a little bit of practice of doing this back and forth. So Team Romans, here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you sing along with me, and you're going to sing the following uh, phrase. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Guess what you guys are singing? Praise ye the Lord. You guys ready? All right, Team Romans, let's hear it. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Give yourselves a round of applause. That was beautiful. And now you know how to go back and forth as we do something. So I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able. We're going to read God's word out loud together. Romans 9, verses 1 through 18. Uh, this side of the aisle, you guys are going to be reading the non-bolded. And if it's easier for you to, to see, you're going to be reading the odd verses. This side, you're going to be reading the bolded verses, the even verses, all right? So here we go. This is the word of the Lord that we're about to read here, Romans 9. You guys ready? All right. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth." So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you were able to uh, pay attention as you were reading there, um, you see that by the end we have the, the light, breezy topic of predestination brought up there. Thanks for that, Pastor Matt. Actually, thanks to Pastor Matt, next week is going to be uh, the same, same thing. So what you get this morning is just uh, an intro to it. Pastor Matt will be diving into it a little bit more. But um, I do want to start out right before we pray by saying, yes, we got to this idea of predestination, God's sovereignty. Um, but that was at the end there. That's not even the main point of this passage. So we'll get there. We'll get there near the end this morning, and we'll talk about it a little bit. Like I said, Pastor Matt's really going to press into it a, a little bit more next week. Um, but there's a different, God's got something else for us uh, that's the main part this morning. And that's this, and that, that, that's this question of can we trust God's word, can we trust God's promises? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so knowing that, would you pray with me? God, we come before you this morning eager and hungry to hear from your word. Jesus, we want to see you and know you more, God. We want to search out your grace, search out your mercy, and we want to know it at work in our lives. 
And God, we want to be able to stand firm on your words. And so would you grant us that firmness this morning, that as we open up your words and read from them, they would grab our hearts and give us certainty in the things that you have promised us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where what's being told to you is blatantly contradicted by what's right in front of your face. You ever? Anyone ever experienced that? Someone's telling you something, and you're like, okay, yeah, but you, you see what's happening right here, right? This happened to me once. I was, uh, when I was a youth pastor in Chicago, we were on a retreat um, at this great retreat center and kind of walking along with some students, checking out the camp, and we find this, what seems to be ancient toboggan shoot. It's like you climb this rickety ladder uh, to the top. Someone hands you a toboggan. You sit on it. You go down this wooden chute, like, I don't know, 8, 10 feet. And then it, like, the, the chute like, meets the hill, and you, and you get shot out uh, down the hill. Well, where the, where the chute met the hill, it was all like iced over and really uneven. And like, it was like very clear that when you went down that toboggan, about two feet before you left the chute, you were going to start rocking a lot. And uh, so I'm taking all this in, and then all of a sudden I hear behind me like, Jason, I want to go try that thing. And I was like, dude, that is a terrible, terrible idea. Luckily for us, there was a volunteer from the camp right behind us who said, oh, no, that thing's awesome. And it's probably safer than the tubing hill that we have, so you're good. And I was like, oh, great. Okay. Against my better judgment, you know, go ahead, Matthias, try it. And so he climbed up and this is one of those instances where I was right. <laughs> Matthias ended up going home with probably the largest shiner on his eye that I've ever seen. Ah. And I knew it. I knew it. I, I got to find that volunteer and tell him, I knew it. You were wrong. <laughs> like what, what you were telling me, the evidence was just not driving with that. What I was seeing right in front of my face, like this isn't going to work. And you see, that's the situation that Paul kind of finds himself in at this point in the book of Romans. People are kind of looking at what he's been saying in the book so far. And I think Paul kind of knows, like, oh, there's, a, there's something I need to address here. Because all the stuff that I'm sharing about God's grace, there's this question that people are asking. And let me rehash kind of where we've been in this Roman Road series. And that's going to help us understand, well, what's the issue that Paul's addressing this morning? And so uh, this is our third installment of four installments here on the Romans uh, Road series. And uh, we ended in chapter 8 the last time that we were here. So Paul spent these first eight chapters really highlighting God's righteousness and his grace uh, in the gospel. And so Paul kind of started out by looking at how doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile, whatever. We're all under God's righteous condemnation because we're sinners. And we've all failed. We all fall short of the glory of God. But Paul goes on, praise be to God. That man, Christ Jesus, while we were yet sinners, died for us. We can receive that salvation as a gift from God by faith. And Paul has shown through it all that this is just the fulfillment of the promises that he has always made. This is the culmination of all the promises that God has made to God's people, to the Jewish people, to the Israelites. They've come to fruition in Christ Jesus. You can know God. You can know life in him. When you receive Christ Jesus, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He indwells you, and you know resurrection life and resurrection power because of it. This is where Paul runs into this issue. 
See, he has gone to great lengths to show his readers how this is the fulfillment of promises made to the Jewish people. And this is, this is now something that is contrary to what everybody in the Greco-Roman world was experiencing at this time. Wait a second, Paul. God made all these promises to the Israelites. You're telling us that all these promises are fulfilled in Jesus. All these promises made to the Israelites are fulfilled in Jesus. How many Jewish people are actually following this Jesus guy? If you're in the Greco-Roman world, similar to today, small percentage, tiny little bit. So how could it be that God's promises are being fulfilled? The very people he promised to haven't received that goodness. You see what I mean? The evidence is contrary to all that Paul has been sharing. He's got this problem that he needs to say, no, 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 what I'm telling you is true. What I'm telling you is right. And so chapters 9 through 11, what we're going to look at uh, in the next several weeks here, is going to cover Paul's answer to this question of, well, what's going on here? And it's, it's not just a theological question for us to ask, kind of removed from the situation. It, it's a question that we actually should take to heart deeply. Because Romans 8 tells us right at the end, after cataloging all of God's goodness, Romans 8 says there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God. Amen? What about the Jewish people? Didn't God promise that they wouldn't be separated from him? Didn't God promise to the Jewish people that he'd make a great nation out of them? Didn't God promise that he'd bring a savior to them? Well, it seems like something separated God's people from his love. So if God reneged on his promises to the Jewish people, can I really trust that nothing's going to separate us from the love of God? Do you see the problem? Paul's going to show us, actually, no, that's not a problem. That's not an issue. In this case, the toboggan chute works, okay? You can trust it. You can go down that toboggan chute. You're not going to get a shiner. Paul is right about this, but he has to answer the question, and it's going to give us more certainty in God's words and in God's promises. And so I want to dive into that this morning. As we dive in and work through this passage and work through how Paul answers this question, first we're going to start with him raising the question, uh, verses 1 to 6a. And then moving on from there, we're going to go from 6b to verse 13. And that's where Paul really uh, hones in on the answer. Uh, and then from 14 on to 18, Paul draws a conclusion for us. And we'll draw that conclusion as we get to the end of the sermon. Make sense where we're going? Great. So we're going to jump right in here into verses 1 to 6. I'm just going to get the scripture back up on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along as well. But here's what Paul says. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Again, he knows that there's this issue, and he's like, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's Jewish, and so his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, he's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters who have not received uh, what God has promised them. And Paul's not saying, Paul's saying, no, it's not as if God's promises have failed. It's actually a travesty that God's people are missing out on those promises. 
That's what's going on here. The promises aren't the issue, it's the people. And that causes Paul deep sorrow and anguish. He's saying they're accursed. They're cut off from Christ. And Paul's like, I wish I could be cut off for their sake so that they could be in right relationship with God and know Jesus. He goes on, he elaborates. They are Israelites. And to them belong this whole list of things. To them belong the adoption. You know, in Exodus 4, uh, God calls his people his firstborn uh, son. That means that they're heirs to the king of the universe. To them belongs the glory. Later on in Exodus 40, God's physical manifestation of his glory appears and is held in the temple. It was given to the Israelites as a gift, and it was their duty to continue to serve the Lord and make his name great and his glory known. To them belongs that gift and that service. Paul goes on. To them belong the, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. God promised his people to make them a great nation, and he would use them to bless the entire world. They have all of these things. They have this privileged position. Paul goes on, to them belongs the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul looks at it. He catalogs it. He says, look at all of the privileges God's people genuinely have. Look at all these things. And yet... They don't know Jesus. They missed it. They're not laying hold of it. All of those things that, that the Israelites were given graciously by God, all those things pointed to Christ Jesus. All those things are fulfilled in Christ Jesus, and they're not getting it. That's what Paul's saying here. It's the source of his sorrow. They have it all. They've got it all, but doesn't matter how much you have. If you don't know Jesus, that chasm is so vast. I mean, the Israelites were the most privileged group in the eyes of God. It didn't do them any good when it came to Jesus. And it produces sorrow in Paul. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And it's... It's really in the grammar that you can really see this highlighted. I'm a big grammar guy. Anybody else like grammar? Probably the only one. Yeah, no hands. Oh, there's a hand. All right. Yeah, great. To them, to them, to them belongs, to them belongs, to them belongs, to them belongs. We get to Christ. It changes. From them comes the Christ. Yes, absolutely, Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of all of those promises. But two things are happening here. First, the Israelites are not laying hold to that promise, so to them does not belong Christ. Second, Christ is for all. It was never just about the Jewish people. It was about the salvation of all. And so from them came Christ. That's Paul's whole focus then is on Christ. This is, this is the missing ingredient. The, the evidence that's in front of my face, well, this is God's privileged people and what's going on? They haven't received it. This is the missing ingredient here. Well, it's, it's because they don't have Christ, because they're not receiving Christ. So he gets into verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, as you might think. See, Paul brings the issue up. 
And he's about to show the answer to that question, but I want us to kind of pause in this moment at this point in chapter 9. See, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture, okay? So God, God penned the words through, um, through Paul himself. But, but God used Paul, uh, the way that he designed Paul, his personality, his background, his training. He used those things to give us the words that we have in the books that Paul has written. And you know what? Paul was a stellar student. Okay, he... He got like the equivalent of a PhD from the prestigious university. He, he sat under one of the best and, and most well-known uh, Jewish rabbis, okay? He learned from him. Paul was, I mean, he, he was advancing beyond all of his peers in his studies. He was a brilliant thinker. He was a brilliant writer. He was a great theologian, as you can see in the book of Romans and, and in the other books that he wrote. He had all those things. Okay, but Paul did not approach this question as a theological curiosity, right? Great theologian though he was, sometimes we get this picture of, I don't know, sitting in an armchair, smoking a pipe, asking these like deep theological, you're probably British if you're doing that, just asking these deep theological questions, right? The accent makes you smarter, doesn't it? See, that's not Paul. He's not removed from the situation. It's not this impassive, let me just ponder these things. He has deep sorrow, unceasing anguish in his soul because his brothers and sisters, his kinsmen, don't know Jesus. This issue is not a theological curiosity. It matters to Paul. And I want us to press in this morning. Does it matter to you that there are people who don't know Jesus, privileged as they may be, material blessings that they may have here on earth, those in our lives that, that don't know Jesus and don't know eternal life in him, do we feel the deep sorrow and unceasing anguish knowing that there are people that don't know the promises of God fulfilled in Christ? And I would just offer as, a, as an aside this morning, if we want to grow in that, if you say, well... Kind of care-ish. Sometimes that's how I feel. If we want to grow in that, it starts by getting on our knees and praying. Paul prayed for these people time and time and time and time again. I believe as we continue to pray for those who don't know the Lord, that will grow in us this compassion and this desire to see them come to know the Lord. That's where Paul starts this morning as he answers this question. But he'll move in and, and he'll answer the question. And um, let me sum up his answer to this question of uh, have, have God's promises failed? Can we trust God's word? Here's Paul's answer, and then we'll dive in into 6b and on. Paul's answer essentially is this God's salvation has always been and always will be grounded in sovereign grace. Now that's. Kind of a simple thing, but it's profound, and it answers Paul's question here. God's salvation has always been, that's the first point Paul's going to make, it's always been and always will be grounded in God's sovereign grace. We're going to see how Paul uh, shows that, demonstrates that in the coming verses, but that's how Paul begins to unpack this question of, wait, uh, 
Did God's promises fail? Did God's word fail? Can we trust God's word? Can we trust God's promises? Nothing can separate me from the love of God, but then the Jewish people get separated from the love of God. Paul says, no, 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 no. Let me show you why. And so he's going to jump in right now and show us why. Starting in verse 6b, and we're going to read through, well, we're going to work through verse um, 13. God's salvation has always been and always will be grounded in sovereign grace. 6b. Here he goes. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, okay, you know what? Let me break it down for you. This will be easier to understand. I'm from Chicago, okay? There's a test that I have to know if you're really from Chicago. Because not all who are from Chicago are from Chicago. Back in the motherland, we have, we have these places called hot dog stands. Now, you guys have been blessed with uh, Portillo's uh, moving up here, one location, good for you. You can go there or go to a ball game, get yourself a hot dog. Not many other places you can go to get a decent hot dog. In Chicago, they're all over the place. There's one thing, though, that you won't find on those hot dogs if you're getting a real hot dog. What is it? Ketchup. That's right. You throw that in the garbage. Okay? Not everyone who's from Chicago is from Chicago. You put ketchup on your hot dog? No. Are you from Minnesota? Not all descended from Israel simply because they are uh, claiming Abraham as their father. Not all of them carry the true characteristics of what God intended Israel to be. And what God intended Israel to be was to be a, a, a people for himself who responded to his grace by faith, by receiving his law, by receiving his instruction, by receiving what he'd given them and walking in it and sharing it with the, Lord, or sharing it with the world. And submitting to God as Lord. Not all who were born Israelites walked in God's design to be an Israelite. Not all who are Israel are Israel. Some of them put ketchup on their hot dogs. Yeah, there are physical descendants of Abraham. And Paul, use it. Paul uses that group. He uses that people group. And he uses, he uses the biological group to bless the world. But not every individual that was a part of that biological group was truly walking in God's promises. It's never been about biology, Paul says. It's never been about who you claim as your father. From an earthly standpoint, it's always been about who's receiving the promise. Abraham is the father of faith. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what Paul is saying has always made Israel Israel. God's salvation has always been and always will be grounded in sovereign grace. And so Paul goes on. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that not the children of the flesh. Uh, that, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That word there, reckoned, counted, same exact word used when it says Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. The children of the promise are counted as offspring, those who have received the promise, not just those of the flesh. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Highlighting that it's about the promise because... Abraham had another son before Isaac. Who was that? Ishmael. But Paul's saying, no, it's about the promise God made, not the biology. Because if it were about the biology, well, the Ishmaelites can trace their lineage back to Abraham. And Paul's saying, well, no, there's a distinction there. The Ishmaelites were not Israelites. They came from Abraham. So Paul's point is, again, highlighting this idea that it's about the promise. It can't just be biology that determines who are God's people and and who aren't. See, Isaac's birth was the result of supernatural promise that, that God made good on. Ishmael's birth was the result of human cunning. Uh, God, you know, you know, Sarah is. One of my favorite terms recently that I can apply to both pastors, Matt and Kenny, advanced in years. (laughs) One who just turned 50, one who just became a grandpa. I mean, oh, having a field day. Sarah was advanced in years, way advanced. She was also barren her entire life. But God's promise, God acting, is what created the lineage that traces, their, uh, that traces themselves back to Abraham, not just their biological father, but the father of faith, because it's, it's based on the promise. Ishmael was, oh, well, yeah, we'll make it work, God, thanks. Uh, you gave us the right idea, and uh, here you go, we got Ishmael. All right, we made, it, we made it work, God, didn't we? No, it's not what it's based on. God's salvation has always been and always will be grounded in sovereign grace when God promises to do something. Paul goes on. Because unless you think, okay, well, uh, you know, there's another difference there. Um, Sure, yeah, the Ishmaelites can trace their lineage back to Abraham, but they can't trace their lineage back to Sarah. Maybe God used, uh, maybe it was like a both hand. You you need Father Abraham and Mother Sarah. Uh, Well, okay, fine. Uh, Not just that. Um, verse 10, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Rebekah conceived something interesting. She conceived twins. So what you have here is same moment of conception, same father, same mother. Okay, you cannot, you can no longer make the argument um, that there was anything else going on here other than God's choice, God's promise. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. See, God, God does things in his own way, and he's free to choose how he does things. So again, we, we see, man, these were twins. They had done nothing, and God is the one who promised and chose and said, this is the one through whom, this is going to be the son of the promise through whom I will bring the blessings of Christ to the entire world through. That, that, was, that was God, and it's based on his promise. It's grounded in his sovereign grace. And it's crazy in this story that the younger brother will be, sit over the older brother. The older brother will serve the younger. I mean, it, t- today that's a crazy thought. Like, I've got a younger brother, and every now and then I've got to kind of remind him about who's older and who's younger. Back in, back, in the, back in the day here, man, this was a huge deal. I mean, you got the major portion of the inheritance. You had the responsibilities of continuing the family life. I mean, you got, you got everything as the older. But because it's God's choice and because it's God's will and because it's God's way and because it's not about biology and because it's not about human works or exertion and because it doesn't fit into our nice little system, God decides, no, it's not going to be that way with my people. These are my people. I'm going to choose how I'm going to do this. I'm going to choose how I extend mercy. I'm going to choose how I extend compassion. And I'm going to choose the younger to carry on the line. It's never been about biology. It's never been about human will or exertion. It's always been about the one who calls, the God who calls, the God who promises. That emphasizes Paul's point. God's salvation has always been and always will be grounded in sovereign grace. We don't have, oh, God worked this way in the Old Testament and this way in the New Testament. It's always been this way. It's always been this way. It's not the physical progeny of Abraham that are true Israelites. It's the spiritual progeny of God's promise that are true Israelites. Verse 11, it's grounded in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, it's grounded in him who calls, the one who initiates, the one who starts it all. And here's another place we need to press in. Would you guys uh, press into Jewish thought with me for just a moment? Can we do that? Yeah? It won't take very long. But here's, here was Jewish belief at this time. If you were born Jewish and, and Abraham was your forefather, then, then you had a birthright of salvation. You were guaranteed salvation by nature of your lineage. Now, you could lose that salvation by apostasy. You could lose that salvation by saying, eh, covenant's not for me, law's not for me, sacrifices aren't for me, eh, no thanks. And then you get yourself kicked out of camp. And it's not like kicked out of camp, oh great, I get to go to the hotel down the road. It's like kicked out of camp, I'm not, I'm no longer a part of these people. But it, it wasn't the case that you were born kind of neutral and you have the chance to, to be saved or uh, to not be saved. Jewish thought was, no, you are born with it. You can lose it, so don't, but you've got it from birth. The gospel doesn't teach this, and quite frankly, 
God's word never taught that. And I want to apply that to today. Being raised in a Christian home does not grant you salvation as a birthright. For whatever this term means, living in a Christian nation does not grant you salvation. Being around the church, growing up in the church your whole life, coming to church, attending regularly, being a member here at Friendship Church, serving here at Friendship Church, that does not guarantee personal salvation. None of those things do. They never did. It's never been about human works, exertion of human will. It's always been about him who calls. It's always been grounded in God's grace. It's responding to God's grace when he calls us. It's never been about any of those other things. Sometimes it's dangerous when we get thinking along those lines. I was raised in a Christian home, yeah, and I've just continued to do that, and it's a good thing. No, it's always been about the God who promises and receiving those promises. Paul's going to go on to demonstrate that salvation is given by God as a gift received by faith. It's always been that way. God's salvation has always been and always will be grounded in sovereign grace. And that's good news this morning. It means we can trust God's word. His promises have not failed. Romans 8 is true. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's true. It's always been true. And Paul's going to end this section by drawing a conclusion for us. Starting in verse 14, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Why would Paul ask this rhetorical question? Why would there be, why might there be injustice? Paul had just got done saying, well, Jacob and Esau hadn't done anything yet, but, but, but God had what? He, he'd ch- chosen one and not the other? That, that doesn't seem fair. Shakespeare put this, I'll, I'll try to put it a little bit more elegantly than, than Shakespeare put it. Shakespeare once said, um, you want justice? Okay, you ain't going to get God. So that's a paraphrase of Shakespeare, but you, you get the gist. Sorry, that may have been a little bit too intellectual for you all. Next time I'll bring it down a little bit. I just couldn't remember the quote word for word. I'm sorry. You can look it up. You can Google it. Shakespeare justice. But you want justice? Okay. We're all sinners. If that's what you want, that's what justice is. Paul says, by no means is there injustice. Some some people are getting what they don't deserve. Lots of people are getting what they don't deserve, which is salvation. We haven't earned it. We sinned. We all deserve condemnation. See, if God is truly merciful, he must be free to choose to whom he extends mercy 
If there were a set of rules that said, if this, this, and this are true, this person is going to get mercy extended to them. Is God God anymore? He's now being governed by a law higher than himself. Is that mercy? No. It's now being governed by something else, something external. If God is not free to choose, he's not God. If God is not free to choose, his mercy isn't mercy. And that's what Paul's saying here. Again, at the end, this point is incidental. This point is accidental. This point comes in not because Paul wants to harp on predestination and free will and election. It's because Paul is making this point of we can trust God's word because he's sovereign. We can trust God's word because these promises that he's made have always been there and they'll always be there and he's always extended this in a merciful way. And that's why Paul lands here at this idea of God extending mercy in his own free will. God would cease to be God. His mercy would cease to be mercy if he wasn't free to extend that mercy. That's what Paul says as we read on. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the conclusion Paul draws for us. God's salvation always has been and always will be grounded in divine and sovereign grace. This is good news. I don't know about you, but I know me And I know my heart, without Jesus, I would never find God. Would never. Unless God did a work in my heart, unless God came in and the Holy Spirit convicted me and he removed the scales from my eyes, I couldn't find God. I don't want my salvation to be dependent on my human will. I've seen my human will in action. It's not very strong. It's not very good. I let middle school students go down a toboggan shoot and get a massive shiner in their eyes, okay? That's what the world would look like if it were dependent on my will. God needed to act first. And that brings up a tough question for us to wrestle with. Fortunately, Pastor Matt gets to do that next week. But it brings up this question. Well, if God is the one who chooses, then do I have free will? Let me ask the question this way. Does God choose who is saved and who isn't? Or do humans have free will in the process of salvation? Does God choose who's saved and who isn't? Or do humans have free will in the process of salvation? I'm going to give you the answer this morning. You ready? Yes. Yes, indeed. Scripture tells both. Scripture probably talks more about human responsibility than it does divine sovereignty. Scripture often calls us to respond to God's divine sovereignty. And and typically, divine sovereignty isn't the point of any of the passages uh, where it talks about divine sovereignty. It's just where the author goes because that's, I mean, we do need to understand divine sovereignty on some levels. 
But that's the end. I mean, we need to hold those things in tension. We need to hold in tension that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens in the universe, including salvation. We are absolutely responsible for all that we do and to respond to God's grace in our lives. We hold those in tension. We hold other things in tension. Jesus is fully God and fully man. What, what does that mean? The, the Trinity, God exists in uh, three persons is one God. What, what does that mean? God is sovereign over everything. And we must respond to God's grace by faith. We live in that tension. But praise God that he's sovereign. <laughs> Man, because if it were human will, whew, I'll speak for all of us. We'd be goners, okay? Myself included. I'd be the first goner. God's salvation has always been and will always be grounded in sovereign grace. And it's a grace that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. Like I said, the point of this passage is not to talk about sitting in our leather armchairs and our British accents, smoking our pipes and talking about these deep things of God and these uh, theological peculiarities that's not what this passage is here for. Paul is answering this impassioned question of what do we do with the people who don't know the Lord, the people that these promises were made to, and, and, and what, do we, what do we make of God's promises now? Well, he grounds that answer in God's sovereignty, and that gives us rest, and that allows us to stand firmly on God's promises. That allows us to read Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, because it's about sovereign grace. It's not about anything else. Paul gives us confidence this morning. And I want to leave us with confidence and assurance in God's sovereignty today. We serve a God who is absolutely good, who is full of compassion, who is slow to anger, who is quick to extend mercy, and who is graciously sovereign over everything. Our life, our death, our salvation is dependent on the all-good, all-loving God of the universe. If you haven't before this morning, I invite you to receive God's call on your life. Receive God's grace by faith in Jesus. And if you have, receive God's grace by faith in Jesus. Come to him again and drink from the grace that he's offering you freely this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace. You are so gracious and merciful, God, and you are due all of the praise and all of the glory. God, we thank you that we have assurance and confidence in your promises. The promises that you will never leave us nor forsake us. The promises that if we receive you by faith, we are yours. I pray we would know that more this morning. I pray we would walk in your grace, walk in confidence because of your grace and your mercy this morning. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we come to the communion table this morning, it's a physical reminder of the God who initiates. While we were still sinners, yet Christ died for us. He chose in his free will. We did nothing. We were dead. 
Jesus chose to leave heaven to submit to the divine will of God and come live a life on our behalf and die on a cross for us, the God who initiates, the God who chose. In a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to reflect on that. And I encourage you to reflect on God's grace and thank him and praise him that he has extended mercy and grace and he has not given us what we are due, which is judgment and wrath. Thank God for that. And as you receive his grace, know also that he empowers us now to live in the newness of life. So search your heart and and ask the Lord if there's any grievous way in you that you are not submitting to his sovereign will. Repent of that. That will free you to engage in the Lord's Supper and remember the God who initiates Jesus Christ himself. So as you are ready, um, you're welcome to find your way to one of the tables and receive the elements. And after this song, I'll be back up here to lead us through taking those elements.